Welcome to Reputation Town. Episode four of the Reputation Town podcast. John, how are you doing today? Good. How are you? I'm great. I'm uh, caffeinated and uh, anticipating the next wave of our, uh, whatever they're calling this new thing, lockdown, shutdown. Super lockdown. Super lockdown. I don't know how that's, how's that different from what we've been doing for the past number of months? You know, that's, it's a good question. I think people have just given up. In fact, I was doing this interview with a public health professional. I'm going to say six months ago. And he said, there's this, there's this well-established dynamic in these situations where people come together at the beginning because everyone wants to pitch in and help out and, you know, let's conquer this thing together. And then after a while, everyone's just like, fuck, I'm tired. Yeah. I'm just going to do whatever I want now. Yeah. And I kind of think we're in that phase. So lockdown, super lockdown. I think people are kind of moved on and <laughs> they're going to do whatever they're going to do. Uh, and, you know, I remember walk, uh, driving downtown during the, you know, the, the first like a year ago, you know, like you had to go downtown or whatever and you're driving and it's like there's no cars. It was like a wasteland. And now there's traffic everywhere. There's like it, it's so it seems like people are not taking this seriously. You saw that baseball game in Texas the other day, 40,000 people yeah. in the stands. Um, I went to, you know, we live sort of in the same area. I was at Starbucks the other day, you know, going in three people at a time, wearing your mask, blah, blah, blah. And there's a gaggle of youths down by the convenience store. There must've been 30 kids and maybe two masks in the bunch. And they were all like in a phone booth sized area, just like the pandemic's over for the, for these folks. And so, um, the it's been really interesting. Did you see the screenshot yesterday of Doug Ford saying uh, schools are safe? And then at the bottom it says all Toronto schools are closed. I know <laughs> it was just this fortunate, just the, the a perfect illustration of the mixed communication. And they keep changing the names of these things and the colors. Like I don't know what color we're in or which color is worse than another color. Parking break, emergency break, hazard lights. <laughs> like it's such a um, shit show. And I, th I think to a, to a great extent, the communications has been a big part of it. Just the, the inconsistency and the, the kind of outright almost lying from the beginning that, um, you know, masks don't work, don't wear masks because they're trying to save them for the, the healthcare workers, which I get. But then they came back like a couple weeks later. Oh yeah. By the way, masks totally work and you have to wear one. And now, now wear two if you can. So at a certain point it's, the old boy who cried wolf thing. Like people are just, I don't know, fed up. And then you see the numbers climb. No matter what we do, the numbers keep going up. And if, if someone would have told you six months ago that the United States would be light years ahead of Canada right now, you probably would have laughed. And that's the stage we're at. Like they're literally not experiencing a fourth wave right now. And the numbers per million for Canada are actually looking like they're going to eclipse the U S right now in the next couple of days. It's pretty amazing. In fact, I was thinking about that the other day as well, about how we were all feeling pretty good about ourselves, you know, six months ago, a year ago, when the U.S. was a bit of a catastrophe uh, in the middle of, you know, its public health response. But now, uh, you know, 
the, the tables have turned and, you know, pretty, uh, I'll admit I'm pretty envious of the, um, the, the amount of vaccine that's available there because, uh, they're going to have more than they know what to do with soon. If they're, they're they're already, like already there. 3 million people a day or something. It's crazy. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and also hoarding vaccines, it should be noted, you know, um, we, we, you know, now we have the federal government pointing fingers at the provinces. You have the provinces pointing fingers at the federal government. Like we can't get them. There's apparently over a million, million and a half of them in freezers here in Ontario. Anyway, we'll stop bitching and complaining about this, but it's, it's the, <laughs> I don't think I wouldn't want to trade places with anybody trying to manage this operationally, but the communications I think has made it so much worse. Well, and I think in our case, um, Ontario has a peculiar situation where there's 34 different public health units and then a uh, chief medical officer of health. And there really isn't exactly a top down mechanism for directing public health in Ontario because of it. So you kind of have 34 different CEOs and another chairperson on top of that, that kind of, kind of can advise, but can't really tell them what to do. So it's not exactly set up for um, success in these kind of uh, crisis situa- situations. Mm. And then, and then Doug Ford, you know, as as the poster boy for, and you know, this is probably not what he signed up for. I'm sure Patrick Brown is is happy every day, pinching himself that he's not the premier right now. But uh, just you know, the press conference after press conference, hey folks, you know, we can do it. Buck a beer one day at a time. We're in this together. And it's just, you look outside and like the world, the world's on fire. (laughs) (laughs) I shouldn't be laughing, but like something's not working, you know, like, uh, and it just, they keep coming up with a new, like maybe if we say, say it's colors, say it's part of a car, you know, just they're they're throwing stuff against the wall and seeing what sticks. And it's as the public. Well, I think you hit hit the nail on the head though, right? If, if, people aren't individually taking responsibility and I'd use your example of uh, cause I've seen it too, tons of kids, groups of 20, 30 kids together, uh, roaming around just doing kid stuff. That's not uh, physical distancing. And that's certainly not adhering to public health guidelines. If that's happening, like, you know, it, some of those kids are going to have potent, have it potentially spread it to their families and so on and so forth. So there's, it's there's no, you can close all the stores you want, but if that's going on, you know, that's kind of social interactions going on without any kind of personal checks and checks on it, then mm. I can't see how you, you can actually successfully manage it. Well, I kept my kid home from school this week, the, the youngest one. Oh yeah. She's not too upset about that, but um, <laughs> like, you know, I'm just, I'm looking at these kids and I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm sure 20% of these kids are in her class. And, yeah. you know, we're almost there and, you know, she can do stuff online and yeah. it made kind of an executive decision and like, oh, privilege. And yeah, for sure. I'm lucky to be able to do that. Yeah. But um, I just, I'm not taking my advice from Doug Ford anymore. Um, you know, not that I was before you take guidance, obviously, but now I'm like, okay, I, we got to figure this out on our own. If I can, you know, just get people vaccinated. That's, that's the thing. That's the only difference between the States and here. First of all, the number of people who've had it in the States is off the charts. So, mm-hmm. you know, you, I think you can only get it once. And then the they're vaccinating 3 million people a day. I, the latest stat that I saw is that the current, we sound like those old guys on the Muppets also. <laughs> <laughs> the, the latest stat that I saw is that it would take another 10 months to vaccinate 75% of Canadians. Well, it just, it's happening too slow. And I think it's, we talked about it last time, but it's this, 
I think it is crazy. This, you know, really well thought through, um, let me use that in sort of quotation marks, mm. uh, process where we're only going to deal with certain ages and certain ways. And so, you know what, like there's, there's appointments going, uh, unfilled every day. Just line them and up. That, Get people and you there. know what, the, the one variable that isn't thought of is time. Time is a variable here. The faster you can get vaccines in arms, that's one less person who could be potentially a vector of spread. And every, every uh, appointment that's missed is a missed opportunity to control this. Yeah. So just get people in. It doesn't matter who they are. Like who cares if, you know, a 35 year old gets ahead of a 55 year old at this stage, just get vaccines in arms. Next, 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 just get someone in there. Exactly. And then you get the whole anti-vaxxers. Well, that's a whole other issue. We'll, we'll, uh, We'll save that for another day. Yeah. Mm. All right. Um, anything you want to off-topic banter about before we jump in? Uh, I think we've got... That was pretty off We used up our time. Off-topic rant. Yeah. Same... We. <laughs> I have to go back, but I think we've bitched about the pandemic and the vaccine response in every episode so far. <laughs> so I'm proud to announce we have a listener. We have a listener out there. I got a note from our buddy Dennis and... Uh, I don't know. Did you see that yesterday or he sent on LinkedIn? He sent a very nice note. I saw that. Yeah, and, that was uh, great. So shout out to Dennis. And uh, I think like Dennis was saying, Hey, I heard you guys talking about HR stuff, like totally out of our heads or over our heads. And for me anyway, maybe you're, you're more of an expert, but uh, I said, Dennis, you know, when we're talking about HR stuff, we should have you on the show. He's like, that could be interesting. So uh, we probably have to idea. get the, uh, the, the, the three second delay going there. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. <laughs> Mr. Inappropriate, but we want to that. I just want to throw that out there that Dennis might be willing to come on the show when we have HR stuff to talk about. I love it. Nice. And in total, I think we have more than one listener. We have a total of 92 downloads so far for three episodes. So, you know, not too bad. Little by little. And still not canceled week four. That's a little victories. Um, <clears throat> any feedback, uh, the one we just posted the one, like, so we, we record these typically on Wednesdays, we post them on Mondays, which is a bit of a delay. We'll see if we can like tighten that up a little bit. That's mostly me on the, just being, you know, slow on the editing piece, but, um, any feedback from anybody in your world about like any, has anyone listened to this thing? What'd they think about the shrimp tail guy? Anything so far, any, or any complaints, anything? We no need complaints. Uh, some good feedback and people interested in listening, which um, is kind of surprising because I thought when you and I thought we would do this, I thought this would just be, <laughs> I'm not sure anyone would find it interesting, but apparently people do. So we'll, we'll keep doing it and um, yeah, exploring some interesting topics as we go. I was mentioning to my kids during dinner last night that uh, we ordered pizza. Like, just I'm like, okay, I just give up. We're gonna have pizza tonight. No, so, no, pizza night is like the highlight of. <laughs> so we're sitting around the table, and uh, so we were just chatting about. I said, "Do you guys know that I have a podcast now with Paranac?" They're like, "Yeah." I said, "So now there's two podcasts I have that you don't listen to." <laughs> and then, like, no response. Just deadpan, staring at me. Anyway, <laughs> made me feel bad. Okay, so um, I know you had something you wanted to chat about this week. Why don't you tee it up? Sure. So I think one of the interesting things we've seen, um, particularly coming to focus this last week, it's something that's that I noticed, uh, I'm going to say about four years ago, became a theme that was stronger than ever and is, I think has only, only increased over time, is the idea of private companies taking 
very public stands on issues relating to public policy or politics or societal issues that um, that uh, are of importance in in the world today. And I think when I remember seeing this really come to come into focus was at the start of the Trump presidency, and and because there was a general feeling that the government was withdrawing uh, itself in some respects as a voice of you know, um, what's right, uh, or at least, at least declaring what it thinks is right. Um, and I, you know, this is this started with the border issues in the U S uh, you started to see private companies step into that void and, and offering opinions. And, and this week it became, I think particularly or last couple of weeks, particularly in focus because of the, the new, uh, voting laws in Georgia. And if people haven't been following that really what's happened is Georgia has passed a number of laws that make it harder to vote by mail, um, uh, make it harder to vote on, on, uh, anything other than voting day and really tightened up restrictions around it. And, you know, there can be a great debate about, you know, on both sides of that issue. But what you've seen is large organizations like Coke and uh, Delta airlines. Um, uh, and I think probably the one that got the most attention was major league baseball pulling the all-star game from Atlanta mm-hmm. uh, in response to this, because it's perceived as uh, a set of laws or a law that is going to make it harder for minorities to vote. And uh, setting that, setting the substance aside, just the idea of companies being very eager to step in is something I think you and I years ago would have seen as really um, unusual. I think you know when I think back twenty years ago, um, companies doing these kinds of things was was not certainly the norm, but it's becoming more and more the norm now. And I think part of that is because a couple of things. I think companies want to be seen to be doing the right thing. And when something's happening in their backyard, uh, it's difficult for like a large organization like Coke that has its headquarters in uh, in Georgia to sit back and say uh, say nothing in the in these circumstances. And and probably the you know last summer with Black Lives Matter that was that was really something that faced a lot of almost every organization. In this case, uh, it's on a smaller scale, but it's still happening. And I think it's probably going to continue to happen. I think we're going to see this as more the norm now going forward than than not. Um, in the past, people might have looked at this and said, well, this is not core to your business, Coke. Why are you stepping into the mm-hmm. voting rights discussion? Um, but the reality is, is that uh, the other big reason is that the uh, empl- uh, companies are more responsive now to, to the voice of their employees. And employees are... St- expect their employer to take positions on, on these sorts of issues. Uh, It's a fine line though. Uh, I don't know before I I have sort of an additional thought on it, but uh, before I go on, um, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on it, Warren. I find this really interesting as well. Like you mentioned that we would have been reluctant back, back in the day. Like we're talking like 10, 20 years ago. Like this to me would have been almost prohibited or forbidden land for, for a brand because you're basically, you're cutting off a huge chunk of your audience, right? Whether you're choosing left or right, um, different sides of a political issue. And ultimately this is uh, like, you know, at, at the core, it's a voting issue, but if you bubble it up, it's a political issue and you have companies kind of picking sides, which is, 
we've always been taught stay away from that. But, you know, those, what are the things you don't discuss at dinner? You know, religion, politics. And now you have companies, um, you know, one of the big, biggest examples a couple of years ago was Nike jumping on board with Colin Kaepernick and just saying, like, this is our guy and and standing with him for for that. And a lot of, you know, you had people burning their Nikes on. But long term, that's that's shown to be, first of all, kind of the right thing to do. But secondly, a genius marketing move like they always Nike seems to be more than most companies years ahead of the market when it comes to those um, those sort of innovative marketing strategies and, and really that's what this is and you know I was having a chat with someone kind of in preparation for this and they said that companies don't own their brands anymore the, the consumers own their brands and and that's that's probably the biggest thing that's changed over that time because you know when you have um a potato farmer who can, you know, sell out ocean spray because he does a TikTok video that I think is, is proof of that, that, and you know, that was an example of, of course it's not political in nature, but you know, when, when, when citizens, people with phones and people with like opinions have the ability to be magnified exponentially and have an impact on your brand, I think you're having a, a climate now where it pays to, to pick a side and, companies want or sorry consumers want to do business with companies that they feel are doing the right thing it's not necessarily the logo or what that means anymore it's about like what it stands for and so that's that's a huge shift and one that i'm watching with uh, fascination i think i think you got you got it exactly right but the the trick here is there's an opposite side to it and that and that i think was for me illustrated this week also by microsoft and in microsoft's case you know they have been increasingly getting into um, supplying the defense industry in the U.S. with services and products in this case because they just won a $22 billion contract with the U.S. military to provide uh, essentially their HoloLens device, which is like a virtual reality kind of heads-up display device you wear on your head to, you know, they use it for gaming now, but the application here will be to present soldiers in the field with you know real-time information about the environment they're in and what's around them and that sort of thing and within microsoft there's a chorus of employees who are saying well wait a second i i work for a software company i'm not interested in working for a defense manufacturer or a company supporting defense and and so on one hand you can say well gee a company's supposed to be responsive to people on these broader political or societal issues and then all of a sudden you've got this other circumstance where a company that's really you know with one contract became you know this became a huge chunk of microsoft's business uh, as a company are they supposed to not entertain those kinds of business opportunities because employees are or some sect of employees are are not comfortable with it and i think this is just shows the the careful balance that has to happen of communicating managing this is an 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 opportunity we uh for to grow our business and it's going to be good for everyone and hey by the way um you know you like that paycheck (laughs) here's here's how we earn it by by growing new markets like this and just keeping our company competitive and balancing that with uh the demand on the other side to have companies be um be an active voice on on issues that can be tricky so when I look at it, I say this is a perfect example of why communications has to be at the table at the executive team to manage these kinds of things. Because unless you are approaching these kind of communications challenges 
from the right from the beginning when the business opportunity is starting to be explored or from the time that you know you're discussing whether to weigh in on an issue or not uh you're gonna you're not gonna get the better best outcome possible so it's just an it's it's gonna be something that i think it's gonna be more and more important as we go forward and there's gonna be some landmines and some companies are gonna do it wrong and uh, but on the on balance i think your point about you know, the tremendous opportunity to build a brand, build the reputation around your brand is, uh, is one that shouldn't be missed and companies should be, should be looking at, uh, how to, how to take advantage of these and, and, uh, and build their reputation, put, put some more money in that reputational bank so that if, when the day comes when when you need it, it'll be there. Mm. But mentioning Microsoft with the military application, that's no, that's no different than GE making missiles, which, mm-hmm. you know, I only found out a couple of years ago because I thought they made light bulbs and ovens and then you're there. I used to, when I was a kid, we had a Westinghouse stove and I used to think it was really cool that Westinghouse also made <laughs> parts for nuclear missiles and they made our stove. <laughs> And the, I mean, the other, shows, shows, okay. I was a bit of a weird kid, but uh, that, you know, that it's not, it, it's not unusual that you've got, you know, those kind of conglomerate or large companies yeah. uh, serving multiple industries like that. And that hasn't hurt them reputationally. Cause I think a lot of people don't know it, you know, maybe nerdy, nerdy kids. And yeah. the other one that I really think of is Google, right? Like, you know, every time I see these, I don't know if you saw 60 minutes a couple weeks ago, they had those Boston dynamics robots dancing to that 50 yeah. song. And all I can imagine is like <laughs> the Terminator, man, like they, those robots with like laser plasma rifles, you know, going down. That's, that's where we're headed 10, 20, 30 years from now. Like those, they're not going to be dancing the Macarena. They're going to be like blowing people's heads off. And well, hey, Sam, Samsung already makes a, um, a robotic sentry that, um, it, you know, can be used on. And I think they actually may use some of them in the along the demilitarized zone in Korea, but Samsung makes a device like that, that is, is it's not autonomous, but um, it's a robotic gun. Mm. So yeah, the, the future is here. Yeah. But with the, um, with, with the other stuff, it's, it's, I don't know, to me, it's, it's tricky. And one of the things I've noticed is the companies who are doing it are huge, huge, huge companies, like almost, almost like, You've heard the term "fu" money, like Coca-Cola. I think they're in pretty good shape. Apple, yeah. I, I think they're doing okay. Delta Airlines. I think what you don't see a lot of is two-person consultancies going out to all their client base and like and, and burning one bridge and picking a side. So, in a way, is there a lot of reputational risk? Like, are people going to stop using iPhones? And so, I think that these 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 are very well calculated decisions where I think they pretty much know like, look, the people we're going to lose from this, like, you know, we can afford the upsides bigger than the downside. So I don't think that these are, these decisions are being made just uh, off the cuff or sort of on a whiteboard. I think it's like, there's a, there's a level of um, very calculated intelligence going behind them, but these are also massive, massive companies. Like what are people going to start drinking Pepsi? Like, come on, give me a break. Yeah. Uh, that's a good point. Do you drink, you don't drink Pepsi, do you? I, I do not. Do you drink Coke? I I used to drink a ton of Diet Coke, but I've uh, I've cut back. That stuff's not good for you. <laughs> it's it's not. We uh, I used to work with a woman who drank Diet Coke like it was her job, and she you know again I don't know if there's any any connection, but she ended up dying of sinus cancer, and um, people always speculating like they've had to test you know aspartame and the cancer in, in lab rats and stuff like aspartame is like not good. Well, I, I personally, I don't know. I'm, I don't subscribe to that. I look at, 
Yeah, it's well studied. It's but uh, you think aspartame is like fine? I think so. Yeah, really? I think so. Oh my! I think God. it's it's, okay. it's like the most studied uh, sweetener molecule for like thirty years, and it's been okay. Well, bottoms up. Enjoy. <laughs> <laughs> I have to find a new co-host. <laughs> oh, too oh man! All right, so, so okay, uh, that, yeah, go ahead. Let's let's bury that one. Um, I All know right. you wanted to talk about um, a couple issues. So <clears throat> the one that popped up this week—it's so funny to you know looking at reputational type issues this year is really weird because it's this anomaly of a year where a a lot of things are happening and it's almost like you can't pay attention to everything. And so I think a lot of stuff's falling through the cracks and uh, companies and governments, I think are getting away with a lot of things that they normally, there would be more scrutiny around them, but they're getting away with it just because the world is a dumpster fire and continues to be. And people are dealing with this, not only at the society level, the doom scrolling level, the family level, the children level, like just the depression level, like the frustration, like all those elements. And so I think there's a lot of shit happening out there that people aren't really paying attention to. And, and one of them has to do with Facebook. And so I know it's easy to, to bash Facebook as a, as a terrible company because it seems like it's almost like they sit around in their boardroom and like, what's the worst thing we could do? Like what, what are the worst operational things we can do? Yeah, let's do that. And then what's the worst way we could communicate that? And yeah, let's, let's do it like that. It almost (laughs) seems like that's the case. And so the, the one that, that I saw this past week was there was a news story that came out. So there's this gentleman who runs a cybersecurity intelligence firm. His name's, uh, I think it's Alon Gall, G-A-L. I think that's his name. I don't know how to pronounce it, but He's the CTO of Hudson Rock. And so he was online and found this kind of treasure trove of of Facebook users' data online, 533 million people's personal information. So it's phone numbers, personal data, you know, birthdays, locations, bios, emails, full names. If you're a hacker, this is a pretty, pretty valuable chunk of, of information. And so he kind of and you know, he's trying to get some, some publicity for his company. And so he, he basically announces that they've found this information and it's really fascinating. And I think there's about three and a half million Canadian accounts involved in that. So it's like, these are gigantic numbers. And the response from Facebook was basically nothing. Like, I don't know if you saw, but the, the head of communications for Facebook sent out a a response uh, by Twitter to, you know, the article had come out and she said, she said this, very sort of tersely worded response. And it was, this was old data that was previously reported on in 2019. We found and fixed this issue in August, 2019. That was her whole explanation. So it's kind of like, Oh um, yeah. Old news, nothing to see here, but no apology. No, like, yeah, you patch the hole, but the horse is out of the barn still. Like what do people do? Should people secure their accounts? And you know, you can imagine the comments under that tweet. And so it's, to me and and then you know and then i I compare that with their like i have their stock price up on the screen right now 308 dollars as all-time high i think right now it's at at an all-time high 876 billion dollar company and so um you know it, it it almost undermines the whole the whole pursuit of of reputation management like does it even matter you know when you have the world's most targeted advertising tool that's ever existed 
Does it even matter if, what you do? And and is the public, you know, you know, was it Marriott was the last breach of this size? I think it was like a half a billion people or something like that. Like, I think people are getting just fatigued with these these numbers. And we have there's so many data breaches. Like I remember the Life Labs one from like a little over a year ago. Fifteen million people in Canada, their health information. And we just see these and we're like, oh, you know, okay, another one. And then you're just overwhelmed with everything else. And so to me, it was um, the sort of blase response to to this to this uh, massive breach. And the fact that they were saying, well, look, that was from two years ago. Like, it's not that big of a deal. Um, and then just no, just no, none of the stuff we talk about, like the things that you should do when you, I don't know, like if I breached 500 million people's information, I couldn't sleep at night, you know, like, or you, you'd, you'd have to make some, or quit the business or I don't know, roll up your company. But these stories, uh, drive me crazy and still I have a Facebook account. You know what I mean? So like, I feel like a total hypocrite at the same time. Um, I don't really use it. It's there, but I just, so, well, you know, just I, break down the strategy you just went through. Like you said, their response was essentially, this is old news. Right. Which in effect is, is a strategy that it says we're going to manage this by, by saying to the reporter, look, there's nothing here because this is reported on long ago. And why are you talking about it again? Mm-hmm. Which, which if your overall strategy is to try and, I guess, burnish your uh, reputation or burnish your, uh, how you appear, you appear to take privacy seriously. That doesn't do that at all. In fact, it just it minimizes it, right? It makes it seem like you're not really concerned about it mm. versus maybe a strategy that said, you know what, um, let's deal with the breach holistically. We're going to use this as an, an opportunity to, to, you know, apologize and then, you know, talk about the things that we're doing to make sure it doesn't happen again. Um, and maybe they did that when it, when it was first reported on, but shouldn't you just keep doing that? Like every opportunity, every time this comes up, why not use the same, same approach if you're, if you're really trying to um, strengthen or fill fill the, the weakness around uh, privacy when it comes to these kinds of breaches. So mm-hmm. I'm just, I'm just confused by their approach and, you know, I think sometimes maybe this shows a bit of hubris where it's like a bit, you know, we don't, why are you bothering us with this question? Puny, well, and puny, and uh, Mark journalist. Zuckerberg keeps getting summoned to all these government hearings, just blows them off. Doesn't show up. Um, I've had not dealings with Facebook, but with companies that work with Facebook. And the implication has always been that everybody is kind of scared of them. They're like the 800 pound gorilla. Um, it's just, it's, um, and I think it comes top down, right? I think this, this, even for that large a company, obviously, I believe that the people at the executive table don't don't care, right? Like they're bringing in money faster than they can count it. They are larger than any government in the world. Um, you know, this guy who's in his 30s who could live in what another 60, 70 years, and mm-hmm. it's one of the most powerful people in the world because when you control what people see, when you, when, you know, a lot of people are getting their news from Facebook as horrifying as, as that is and the echo chamber that exists there. And this is all stuff people, people obviously know about. And this is, you know, the whole, you know, Donald Trump thing and just, you know, the customized news, 
back in the old days, you had Walter Cronkite, you had Peter Mansbridge, and today everyone has their own customized news feed based on the stuff they like, and so mm-hmm. it gets kind of just repackaged and 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 funneled back into them through their phone. But the um, just it's it, it's it's kind of disheartening that you see a company doing so many making so many missteps time after time after time, and then handling them poorly from a communication standpoint, either ignoring it. Or coming up with these kind of lame excuses like, yeah, it's old news that doesn't, you know, like you haven't given us any solutions. And so it's disheartening as a communicator to see that the poor communication doesn't seem to have any impact at all. They just keep going up like a rocket ship. Now, if you pull the camera back and look at this over decades, 10 and 20 years from now, is Facebook even around? Is Facebook even around in 10 years? Um, you know, I don't know. It's hard to believe that they wouldn't be just given the size of them today. But a lot of things can happen in a decade. And maybe these little microaggressions, I'll call them when it comes to their mishandling of their reputation, maybe those come to uh, burn them somewhere down the road. Well, you know, the interesting thing will be is is how the this how the reputation of companies like this will affect them as they get come under increasing regulatory scrutiny, particularly from the U S like Facebook is a great example of a company that I think is at high risk of being broken up. Um, if, if there's an antitrust, um, effort undertaken in the U S um, you know, splitting off things yeah. like face, uh, Facebook Instagram. from Instagram. Well, and they've already done a preemptive, um, they've already tried to preemptively prevent that. Like you've seen how they've changed all the branding of all their platforms. Now it's Instagram by Facebook and they're trying to like just glue all these things together to make it more difficult to pull them apart. But I think that ultimately, yeah, you you and they've done this in oil and gas. Like some of the biggest oil and gas companies are, are little subsidiaries of, of larger ones from back in the day. So they've all just become their own competition. Yeah. Yeah. And the phone, the great example of that from our lifetime is the phone system, right? Breaking yeah. up the phone uh, monopoly in the U.S. in the um, I'm going to say in the really 80s, late 70s. Yeah, it uh, led to you know a huge ecosystem of innovation and and new companies springing up. So I think I think um, that's that's the big risk they face. And you know, at the end of the day, can a can a glowing reputation stop an antitrust effort? Probably not, but. Um, reputational deficits can certainly make it more attractive to make you a target. Mm. Anyway, that's just my two cents, but it, right. it in, interesting, interesting challenge. And, you know, Facebook's not the only company that faces challenges like this. Um, but it is one of the ones that faces, uh, I think higher regulatory uh, risk because of its, its size and, and the, um, the influence it has. Mm. So you had, you had one more, I know. So I, I kind of even hesitate to bring this up. You know, maybe we should just wrap up early today. But the, I saw this headline uh, as I was scrolling through Twitter the other day. And it says 49% of Canadians think journalists are purposely trying to mislead them. And so I'm like, oh, a clickbaity title. <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and so I click on it. And so like basically half of Canadians think journalists are full of shit. And so obviously that, you know, that's my, my thesis has always been that from a media relations standpoint, that if, if you're having trouble with the journalists, the problem is probably you and your misunderstanding of what an interview is or how the process works or, you know, that were you really misquoted or did you just say something stupid during your interview that was really interesting? And I don't necessarily blame the reporter for, for picking that. Now, of course, there are terrible reporters, just like there are terrible 
chefs and electricians and plumbers. And one would argue that reporters have more potential impact because of the, the size of their platforms. But anyway, the, the, I read the article, I think it was from global news and it said, uh, you know, one of the implications is, you know, are, are reporters straying from the kind of ethics and standards of journalism and people might roll their eyes, but that's definitely, you know, journalism ethics is a thing. I remember, taking courses in school and wanting to get this stuff right. And, you know, what are the rules and how are you supposed to report and getting both sides and, and all that kind of like idealistic stuff. And so I'm reading through and it says that the survey was done by the Canadian journalism foundation. And so I'm like, okay, this is a credible organization. And then <laughs> as I was doing some, you know, I knew we were going to be chatting today. So last night I'm doing, making some notes and doing some research and I found a correction to the story that says the story wasn't actually uh, from a survey from the Canadian Journalism Foundation. It was from the Edelman Trust Barometer. And so I'm like, oh, okay. So, mm. like, and it's so funny that my, 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 I don't know, my, the, the credibility or the weight that I gave to the story was lower because instead of being from a journalism foundation, it was from a public relations company. And Edelman has this, it's, it's a pretty big report that they do every year about like trust and with CEOs and the media and stuff like that. And so as soon as I saw that, I'm like, oh, like I, I, it gives me, a, I, I, I paused to, to criticize the, the public a little bit. Like it's cause to me, it's, these are those kind of stories we would always be looking to um, like, you know, if you're a company, one of the best ways to get news is to come up with a survey of some kind. Um, you know, for, and you'll see these every, every year they, they come up, you know, Valentine's day, uh, you know, 62% of people are planning to give chocolate to their, their special loved one this year. And if you read down at the end, it was, you know, sponsored by Laura Secord or, you know, um, surveys about, you know, tomatoes from doctors preventing prostate cancer by the prostate cancer association. Like, so these kinds of things aren't, aren't new, but I found that the subject matter was, was interesting to me that, you know, half of Canadians basically feel that journalists are intentionally trying to lie to them. And so I found it kind of funny that in that story, they actually got, <laughs> they got the source of the, the data wrong. I, I think it was unintentional in that, in that time. But um, the uh, it made me think a little bit about that thesis. And, and so if you look at what's happened to journalism over the past couple of decades, especially the last decade with social media, that when you file a story, let's say you work for, I don't know, let's just pick a, a big newspaper. You work for a newspaper, you file a story. There are people and tracking eyeballs and clicks and time on a story and is the story being shared. And so we didn't, no one had the ability to do that a couple of decades ago. And that ability is really, really highlighted now. And then you have, you combine that with the financial problems that have been plaguing the media outlets, not only here, but around the world. And then you have this kind of perfect storm where I think it does kind of encourage clickbait and, and, and maybe not even intentionally, you're just trying to survive and, and save your business. So am I going to write a story about some complicated regulatory thing that people should know about, but is not going to get any eyeballs? Or am I going to write about the bear who was in someone's swimming pool uh, yesterday, just to pick a, a ridiculous example. And so I think there is an element of, I don't think they're necessarily trying to mislead you, but I think the economics of journalism have led to more, more um, catering to these, uh, these stories that tend to anger people or push your buttons or just that sort of superficial kind of sugary sort of news stories. And so I think that the net loser is, is the consumer, the, the, the news consumer, the Canadian or the, you know, whatever country you're from, because I think this is happening all over the world. So, I saw the headline, read the story, 
thought it was kind of BS. And then I thought the larger trend, and then you have people, you know, Donald Trump, the enemy of the people. And you've probably seen all of the clips of, especially in Canada, it seems female journalists out there doing their job and these boneheads drive by and yelling things out of the car. It's a really troubling trend and people just, you know, there was a day when journalists were revered and, you know, when they'd be in war zones, everybody would stay away from them. They're the storytellers. And today it just like, they're seen like as like vermin. And, uh, I personally think it's, uh, it's damaging. Anything. That's well, my rant on that. Well, what you're, ta- what you're talking about is, you know, media is sort of taking the cue a little bit from social media because on social media, what sells or what share, you know, what's, what's most viral, what's shared most often are things that are controversial and, and create anger and, and outrage. And, and so if I'm a, if I'm an editor or I'm a producer and I see that's what's, what's moving on social platforms, yeah, I'm probably going to be biased towards covering stuff like that in, in the news uh, cycles as well. But uh, you know, it, I think I'm glad you raised this issue because like I used to work for Edelman years ago. Um, uh, so full disclosure and um, they do this trust barometer report every year, but I think it is, you know, I'm not even sure why media covers it so much because it's essentially it's a poll. They do play poll 30,000 people in different countries and, and, and um, on the topic of trust and, and, and then they present the results. But when you look at the way some of the results they do present, it really raises eyebrows. So in that same report you're talking about, one of the things they tested was trust in government. And in this version, this is the 2021 version, and this caught my attention two years ago and last year as well, is that the the one of the top-ranked governments in the world in terms of trust was Saudi Arabia, which I th- when I saw it, I thought, that is total bullshit mm-hmm. because... So you're telling me you're you're polling people in Saudi and then asking them if they trust their government? Like this is not exactly the most open and democratic society we're talking about. So just doing this poll this way it really cast like casts a lot of question marks around it. But in this in the 2021 version, I'm just uh, looking at a a story about it right now. Saudi comes up again in the top, and uh, according to the report. China scored the top spot with Saudi Arabia at 82% and the United Arab Emirates third at 80% in terms of trust in government. Mm. So congratulations. You've asked uh, people in these countries if they trust their governments, they're not democratic environments. Um, and, um, and yeah, they don't want to get chopped up. Like, like, so if, how much credibility can the rest of the thing have? And I'm not yeah. saying throw it all out because of, you know, one or a couple of data points, but it really just underscores, I think, some of the, the, the question marks about the strategy that's being used here. And then this is being purported as trust. So, but set that aside for a second, back to your point about, uh, you know, the perception that people have about journalists trying to mislead them. You know, I think part, this is part of the polarization we've seen in society. Uh, and as you point out, media being portrayed as the, as you know, as, as far as going the enemy, um, but also it, I think it's part in the way the media covers things, uh, sometimes. And, you know, they're, they, um, you know, you, you and I, or you saw, I tweeted something yesterday about, I was watching CP 24 and I saw them give, you know, it was probably at least five or seven minutes of airtime to the three opposition parties in Ontario to pretty much say whatever they wanted oh, with, yeah, with no that. critique whatsoever. Um, 
and so here's a great example of like everyone should be critiqued, right? They, they critique the government really tightly, but you should be taking the same approach with the opposition as well. And, and being perceived as truly independent and truly, um, uh, pressing political leaders in this case for, you know, to really prove their points and make their cases, uh, not throw questions like, what would you do differently? Oh, that's interesting. And move on to the next question. Like, like you may, like they can buy an ad if they want to say those things. Right. The, the, but here's, this is, this is where journalists, I think are not helping themselves by, um, by failing to, to provide that additional level of scrutiny. And for them, it, it, I know it's hard because if you're writing, if you're doing a story and the story is, you know, government failing, uh, government's um, COVID policy is failing, you know, you're critiquing the government and you go for a third party or, or someone else for, you know, a, a comment on how the government's failing. It doesn't exactly fit your story to, the, to then critique the, <laughs> the, the person yeah. you're looking to, to get a quote to fill that space. So uh, it, it does complicate uh, how journalism is done, but maybe that's the point that maybe journalism needs a needs an adjustment in how it's done. Well, I went, I was in journalism school in 93 and um, I remember very specifically a lot of the, the core lessons and the, and the fundamental principles that we were taught in the first week, which is get your opinion out of it. Um, there's no room for opinions in journalism. It's objective objectivity is the, the, is the bar to aspire to. And it was, and one of the things they would do, I found it interesting. And, and, you know, I, I think this is to me the, the biggest, the biggest drop in, in, in uh, journalism across the board. Now, of course there are still great reporters, but I think on the whole, what you see, like, you know, they used to bring us out to these places that were so outside of our, um, our wheelhouses, right? Everyone has their, their personal opinions and your little circle and your hobbies and the stuff that you like to do. And so they would ask you to write a story on any topic. And what you would find is that people would gravitate to the same topics. Like um, I would write stories about sports all the time. So I'd find sports companies and sports things and a hockey equipment manufacturer. And another woman would write stories about, um, you know, uh, in vitro fertilization. And, and so you think, Oh, that's an interesting story, but then you'd see the next story and the next story. And so, um, and Lambie would, <laughs> would do stuff on fishing <laughs> or whatever. And, and so everyone had their thing. And so what they started doing, they would bring you to the racetrack, like the, you know, the horse racetrack. First time I'd ever been to a place. And, uh, this guy, our, our, uh, instructor said, you have an hour, go meet somebody, some stranger, talk to them, find out something about them, write a story about it. Or they'd bring you to like a hospital and, and you do the same thing. And so they would just, they would force you out of your bubble and it got you comfortable and it also took your ego out of the story. And that was one of the things that I thought was really um, ingenious about the way they did that. And, and uh, you know, I, again, I'm sending like one of those old guys on the Muppets here. But I think one of the things that has been lost is, you know, ob- objectivity or objective stories are less interesting than than stories with opinions and stories mm-hmm. that have a point of view. And and I think there's a little bit of this where, and I don't, I, you know, I don't want to get too political, but I think what you saw in in the states is it's no secret that the the vast majority of journalists lean left. And I think, and you saw this. I think this is actually one of the reasons Hillary Clinton lost the last election is because the journalists who were trying to get her elected 
were writing aspirational stories and they were kind of inflating her likelihood and they made it seem like a foregone conclusion and they were kind of anointing her Mm -hmm. before the election took place. And then I think a lot of people are like, oh, well, she's going to win anyway. She doesn't need my vote. You know, it's going to be a landslide anyway. And so that to me was one of the things that made the difference. And you saw the same thing with the whole Hunter Biden, you know, the briefcase and all this other You know, the media is kind of picking and choosing winners. And I think that at a micro level, a reporter who might be like a kind of a wokester is thinking, you know, maybe I can I maybe I can just bend this story a little bit. And and, and I think they're doing it because I think they think it's for the right reasons. If I just if I write the story this way or if I produce the story this way, I might just make that little dent that that helps or gets those extra 12 votes or just Mm. changes three Mm -hmm. minds. And and to me, that's. there's certainly a place for that. They're called columnists. Or if you want to have a YouTube channel, that's great. But if you're going to work for, um, you know, a major media outlet, mainstream news, and I have to blame the editors and the producers at a certain level, you need to demand uh, objectivity. And if you see anything else come through, you need to go. But, you know, again, that doesn't sell these days. And so I think they're in a, they're in a really they're in a difficult spot. And I, I think that, and I think we've had chats about this over the years, but I think where this ends up, 10 or 20 years from now is that the the big a lot of newspapers and a lot of local tv stations and radio stations are going to be gone you're going to end up with the big 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 you know cbc will always be there i think the globe and mail will always be there um you know cnn i think is is always going to be there but i think that a lot of the the ones in the middle are going to disappear like i think you probably saw like you know the guelph mercury went out of business a couple years ago doesn't even exist anymore um there were a couple newspapers here in Ontario that shut down their newsrooms. Did you see that? The St. Catherine Standard, I think, was one of them, and, and another sort yeah. of that area where they're working completely virtually now. And yes, you can you can you can run a newspaper without being in the same room, but it's not going to be as good. It's not going to be as good as if you have all those people in the room, you know, bouncing ideas off one another and you know, hearing a tip from across the room. Like there's just a, a, an energy and a there's something that's being lost there, and so. I think what you're going to see down the road is a trend toward individual journalists building up, um, you know, you're going to see these big, massive organizations and you're going to see these micro organizations where you might follow a collection of eight journalists that you, that you think are great and you might pay eight ninety nine a month for their, for their newsletter or their take on the news. And that, I think that's the future of journalism. And you're going to see a lot of the stuff in the middle is going to disappear because of the stuff we're talking about here today. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. Well said. Mm-hmm. I'm telling my sister, start your newsletter, man. Get your, uh, <laughs> start working Close on your subscriber stack. base. Well, because the day that they bring you in and say, and not just her, but anyone, in, if I was in journalism right now, I would be working on that base and I would be getting that subscriber base. So like I said, if you could, if you, if you as a journalist and anyone who's out there in journalism, I would really encourage you to do this. And I don't think it is necessarily, um, goes against anything in your employment contract, um, but build that base. Or if you have that Twitter following, or if you just get that audience built up and your reputation and your trust and like people trusting you that you provide them with great news. And then on the day that you need to, you can actually flip that over to a monetization model and say, look, and I think people are more, you know, it's Netflix, right? People are more comfortable with that these days. And for you to say, look, it's going to be 10 bucks a month for, and I'm going to give you, you know, a ton of work every week and you get the newsletter and you get feeds and this and that and office hours or whatever. If you have a thousand people, that's 120 grand a year. And that's, I would say more than the vast majority of journalists are making these days. And so I think that's, 
the future. What you're talking about is, is having a data operation. And, and this is something we increasingly advise um, people and clients to do. It, is, and it's really a lesson from politics, right? You, you build a data operation by building a, a database of people who are supporters or people who are stakeholders you think are important to connect with. And you cultivate that. It, takes, it happens slowly over time. You build it up, you build it up. Um, but if you take the time to do it now, then you're going to have that data operation at the ready so that should you have a crisis, should you have an issue, should you decide that, you know, in this case, um, I'm a successful journalist and I'm going to, I'm going to take more control of my career and, um, uh, use that data operation as a, in this case, monetize that, as you said, and turn it into a subscription basis. You have the opportunity to do that. Um, but it doesn't happen overnight. It has, it's something you have to start and and cultivate and build because um you know it's it's very hard to do quickly if not impossible in many cases and so it's i I think everyone will be wise whether you're a company or an individual journalist to to start thinking in these terms because uh it it's what we've seen about you know you said earlier when we were talking about people building information silos around them and and only sort of gathering information from um from the sources that they, they really want to hear from. It's not too dissimilar from that. In this case, we want to build, um, uh, you know, the, the audience around us and, um, and affect it becomes an information silo that we're, we're pushing outward to. So mm-hmm. I think it's something that everyone should be thinking about. I would also encourage people to subscribe to a newspaper, you know, just at least one. I subscribe to two, um, I don't read them as much as I should, but I feel like I'm doing a little bit to support um, journalism. And it, it, I always find it interesting when people, you know, there's a story that'll show up on Twitter and then there's a paywall and which is kind of frustrating if you're not a subscriber, you want to just go click through and read it. But people are like, oh, uh, I have to pay for this. I'm not paying for this fake news. And I'm just like, you know, like, what do you do? Are you a plumber? Why don't you come fix my pipes for free? And <laughs> like, they just think, but that's, you know, they've shot themselves in the foot. They've made it, they gave it away for free online for so many years. And now Facebook and, and Huffington Post, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago, like they've just, they made it seem free and good news takes work and it takes yeah. people. And you're seeing a lot of those people like, you know, there's a really great journalist I knew from global TV. I just saw a note on Facebook. She's gone over to the private sector and like they're losing people to communications. And, and uh, so it's, it's unbelievable. And you can't really even quantify, I think what is happening in society that we don't know about that because there's no one, there's no one watching, there's no eyeballs on it and not, not to overstate it and become all like, you know, Woodward and Bernstein, but like, that's that's the job of journalists and like the industry is being gutted and it'll be interesting to see where it ends up but it's kind of sad in the meantime no i agree i think i think subscribing to um papers where you want to reliably get your news is a great idea i i subscribe to three i think right now huh um anything you want to mention or uh plug before we wrap it up anything you're watching reading anything you want to let people know about Good question. Um, you know, nothing that comes to mind this week. I feel like um, the Easter holiday, I, I was busy with some, I think I'll look with many people, home home projects. Um, so it'll be interesting to see where we end up um, after this lockdown starts. But um, I think um, I'm, I'm in the zone of um, let's just uh, gut it out till we get to spring. So I'm going to keep my head down for now. If we all just do our part, we can all be together at insert 
national holiday. <laughs> it's been <laughs> happening since we can all be together for Thanksgiving, for Christmas, for Easter, for whatever. Um, the the thing that I'm working on, like I've I've I'm not a handy person, as you probably know, um, but I I have you know I have a penchant for old old sports cars, let's say, and so I. Mm-hmm. I've been looking to um, get the stock rims for one of them. And I found a set on Kijiji last week. And so went to the dude's house, bought them. They're kind of banged up. And so I have to figure out, am I going to get them refinished in a garage, like a place where you bring it to, or do I want to do this myself? And so I saw a couple guys on YouTube. It doesn't look like you did. It sounds sounds hard. You don't don't think I can do this. (laughs) No, no, I'm not saying you can't do it. I'm just saying that sounds hard. What, well, it does sound hard, but like, what am I, there's nothing else to do. Like, I guess I you're right. You, know, you got all the time. What am, what am I going to do? <laughs> and so I think, you know, you can buy all the stuff, pick it up, curbside pickup at like Home Depot or whatever. There's like all this BS. You got to get like sandpaper different, of different grits and all this other stuff. But Oh, you could do what's, that. It's the okay. worst that could happen. I don't know. It's just, it just, it's, it just takes time a little. Yeah, you could do that. Well, there's like noxious chemicals involved too. You have to get the stripper to get the clear coat off. And to bring them in, I think it's 150 bucks a wheel. So like it's, you know, it's, it's unpleasant either way. Well, you know, it's maybe one of those things too, where you get the personal satisfaction out of having done a bang up job on it and looks great on the car afterwards. I think if, what will probably happen is I will do a terrible job at it and then I'm going to have to pay for it anyway. So I'll do, I'll <laughs> do a little bit of both. <laughs> Spend Best double the amount. Yeah. All right, so is that it? Uh, episode four is in the books. That's it. You know what? I, I the, the one thing I am, I am going to do is um, so a, about a year ago, I guess my family bought me this um, a ticket to take a flight on the uh, Avro Lancaster that just oh. flown out of the Ham, uh, the Warplane Heritage Museum in Hamilton, hmm. and I've been on a I've flown on a B seventeen uh, bomber. I've flown on a B twenty nine heavy bomber. And so this is this is the the last of the heavy bomber World War II heavy bombers that I can probably fly on. So I've got, I, they've emailed me to book that. So I'm probably going to book that. And um, yeah, how does that work with summer. COVID now? Do you get to fly it by yourself, or you're, or you're with some? Like, how does it work? Oh no, they have a, a professionally trained crew who fly. No, but there. like, how are they? I, I'm sure they know how to fly. But how are they not giving you COVID and killing you? Oh, that, uh, I guess, uh, I don't know, find out, uh, I guess there's, uh, some social distancing involved, some testing. You're in a airplane together, <laughs> but you're like two feet keep apart. Keep in mind, it's a, it's an 80 year old airplane and I've and seen it's Gun really well ventilated. <laughs> Jesus. You're just making this shit up. No, no, I'm serious. How big could it be? Oh, it's huge. They, it's a heavy bomber. Do they have you in the back with the cargo? Uh, well, the fuselage is, you can walk through the fuselage. It's got some yeah. seats in there, but it, this is the, this is like the heavy bomber. They, f- the British flew at night over Europe and, uh, do you ever, do you ever hear of the dam busters raid? Uh, no. It's so it's this big, uh, set of dams in the, in the Ruhr Valley in Germany that, um, uh, were sort of at the headwaters of, um, manufacturing area. And they, there's this famous, episode where they design a special spinning bomb uh, so that it could bounce along the top of the water, land at the base of the dam, blow up the dam to flood the uh, flood, the uh, lowlands there uh, to, to knock out some of the manufacturing capabilities of the Germans. Uh, and I mean, this is the, this is the type of plane they, they flew on that mission. And That's there's, o- there's only two of them left in the world flying. One of them is here in Hamilton um, and the other is a part of the battle of Britain Memorial flight in the UK. 
That's amazing. So that's do you have a uh, do you have a GoPro camera? I do. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. Because I say if you want to borrow one, but like you should just videotape as much as you can of that. That would be great. Yeah, I did that with the B seventeen. I did that with the uh, the B twenty nine, which is kind of fun. That's the mm-hmm. plane that dropped the atomic bomb on Japan, and uh, now gonna gonna take this get this one get get this one done and. Um, well, we'll see what comes after that, but it's fun. It's, it's, um, it, it's, uh, interesting. You know, p- some people are, f- are not fans of flying. I, I am okay with it. I don't love it, but I'm okay with it, but I get really excited about these planes and it's kind of just like a one of a once in a lifetime experience. That's cool. So here's an idea. Why don't you record like audio record some of it and then you can take like the most interesting stuff and we'll play it on the show. <laughs> okay, sure. That's a good idea. Like you you barfing <laughs> in the airplane or whatever. <laughs> well, that won't happen, but let's just, you know, they, they take a nice little tour of, oh. you know, Niagara. Sometimes they fly to the falls or fly, fly over Toronto. So you're not uh, going uh, upside to get some down video. Huh? You're not going like upside down. No, there's no inverted flying. No. The plane would like probably fly apart if that happened. It's pretty. It's yeah. They they try and keep the aerial flight to mostly level. So right. <laughs> it's, a, it's not replaceable. So, but you know, well, it's, neither are you, the, buddy. the the neither one thing that I'll say to finish off is that, um, so the plane is powered by four Rolls Royce Merlin engines. These are these are like um, the same same engines that would have powered the. The Spitfire or the P fifty one Mustang, the primary American fighter in the war, and when you have four of them working together, this the 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 whole thing starts vibrating, and the power that's around you is is pretty cool. It's a pretty cool experience. Mm. I'm excited for you. Thanks. We'll have fun with that. All right, great episode. Uh, we will see you next week. Uh, all the best to you and your family. We'll talk soon. Likewise. Thanks, Warren. Thanks for stopping by. If you liked this episode, please rate, review, or recommend the show. See you next time.